Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Okay, so this is one of those episodes that I thought would be, oh, this will be a, a pretty quick one to do when I'm traveling and really busy. And then it ballooned and became two episodes. Uh, so it'll be today and the next episode that we're going to talk about how commercial aviation developed in the 20th century. And it's one of those things that, as I said, it just kept growing and growing as I worked on it because there's a lot of innovation and regulation and tragedy that have all been part of shaping this relatively young industry. And even at two episodes... I would still only call it a brief history of commercial aviation. I feel like many of the things that come up over the course of these two episodes are things that we could do entire episodes on, and in some cases, even series on. For sure. And in the interest of expectations management, while we are going to talk about some things that happened on an international level, I, I'm going ahead and titling this commercial aviation in the U.S., because we do talk a lot more about U.S. companies and regulation than anything else. And... um. Speaking of regulation, this is only going to run up to the year that the U.S. deregulated the airline industry in the late 70s. There's a whole lot more that happens after that, um, but we're going up to that because to me that's sort of like the what I would categorize as the early aviation industry, even though it spans 70 years Um And today in part one, we are just going to go up to and a little into World War II. So buckle up because here we go. Yeah. So since the early 1900s, when the possibility of air travel became a reality at all, many entrepreneurs, including Orville and Wilbur Wright, were trying to figure out how to make flight into a business. We've discussed a lot of other contenders who come up when we're talking about who gets the true credit for the invention of flight, but... Apart from that question, the Wrights put a lot of hustle into monetizing this new mode of travel. Specifically, they started talking to the U.S. Army about possible applications of their new technology, although they had to do a lot of convincing to get the Army on board with that. Yeah, and they, I mean, they were talking to other people in other countries as well, but uh, they were really trying to sell to the Army. And a Navy man named Charles Furness had first seen the Wrights fly in 1904 when he was on leave for the holidays. And from that point, he became a huge fan. And after years of following their work, he helped the Wrights by assisting Charles Taylor, who was their mechanic. So he became their employee officially in the spring of 1908 when they desperately needed help rebuilding their North Carolina camp to prepare for new test flights. They had been away from it for some time. And when they came back thinking that they would do new test flights in prep for this Army stuff, they were like, oh, this camp is a mess now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it actually took a lot more effort to get it back up to the point that they could work from there than they had anticipated. At that point, the Wrights had cut a deal with the U.S. Army to build them an airplane, and other interested parties had, like the Army, suggested that they would be willing to buy if the Wrights could build a plane that had the capability to carry a passenger as well as meet a series of maneuvering and speed requirements. And on the morning of May 14, 1908, Wilbur Wright piloted the first known passenger flight. And he took that man, Charles Furness, on a beach flight that lasted less than half a minute as a way of thanking Charlie for his help and support over the years. Because even before they hired him, he would always pitch in when they needed a hand. And later that day, Charlie was once again a passenger in a much longer two-mile flight, this time with Orville Wright as the pilot. So 1908 became a milestone year in commercial aviation, but it also marked a serious tragedy in the effort to turn air flight into a business. 
On September 17th of that year, Orville carried an Army lieutenant named Thomas Selfridge in a demonstration flight at Fort Myer, Virginia. Selfridge was really knowledgeable about aviation. He was a member of the Aerial Experiment Association and had designed his own airplane. He was also on the five-man committee that the Army had established to evaluate the White Brothers' efforts and meeting the requirements that were outlined in their contract. And during the test, one of the plane's propellers had a problem. Its wooden blade split. And Orville Wright cut the engine, which had started shaking very violently, and he attempted to glide the plane into a landing. But a rear rudder shifted position, and the plane was pretty abruptly tipped nose down. The flight ended in a very hard crash landing in which Selfridge's skull was fractured. Selfridge died later that day and was the first fatality in the commercial aviation business. Orville Wright broke his leg and several ribs, but he did recover over time. The Army allowed the Wrights some time to recover and rebuild, and they ran some tests to determine what had caused the failure in the Fort Myer test and to try to address it. After another series of demonstration flights in 1909, they were awarded a government contract, and they adopted this new technology. The U.S. Army required their pilots to wear helmets because of Selfridge's death. The Wright brothers continued to diversify their business strategy to counter the many other entrepreneurs who wanted to get into aviation. They were definitely not the only people trying to make planes for money. Uh, And one of the ways that they did so was to open the first flying school to train commercial pilots in 1910. And they did that just outside of Montgomery, Alabama. The pilots trained in the Alabama school were taught so that they could fly for the Wrights' traveling exhibitions to try to drum up sales. And then they, in turn, were expected to be able to teach the buyers how to fly their new aircraft. The location was chosen because of the warm weather of the South offered a longer period each year to have flight training. And there was a lot of open, flat farmland. Despite the community in this area doing everything possible to welcome the Wrights and their school, including clearing the land for them and building them a hangar, the school only operated for a short time, and it only had one graduate, Walter Brookins. A series of plane malfunctions and the need to start their next tour led the Wrights to leave the Montgomery area after only a couple of months, and they had left behind... Uh, Brookins and some other people to sort of keep it going, but it really wasn't happening. The farmland that had been set up for the Wrights eventually became a repair depot during World War I, and then it evolved over time to become Maxwell Air Force Base. In 1911, the Burgess Company became the first licensed manufacturer of aircraft. They operated out of Marblehead, Massachusetts. Sterling Burgess, who owned the company, had shifted his interest to aviation after running a successful shipyard, He cut a deal with the Wrights to build planes with their patented technology, and they introduced an aircraft called the Moth that was very similar to the Wrights Model B. During the years that Burgess was in business, things got fairly heated between Sterling Burgess and the Wrights, as disputes erupted over royalties and shipping schedules. But the Wrights still recognized that Burgess was really a worthwhile business partner, and even as Burgess and the Wrights also competed in various competitions to advance the aviation field, they continued this partnership. The Burgess Company was awarded a military contract during World War I, but it took a significant effort to meet the demands of the deal. Just as the war was coming to a close on November 7th, 1918, Burgess Plant No. 2, which at that point was the main manufacturing facility, was destroyed by fire. This spelled the end of the company. Outstanding orders were completed by the No. 1 facility. The 500 employees of the company were given their last paycheck, and then the company was shuttered. And coming up, we'll talk about the first commercial airline to open. But first, we're going to pause for a little sponsor break. 
While there were a number of flights being made for money in the 19-teens, the first actual airline didn't launch until 1914. January 1st of that year marks the first time that an actual airline, the St. Petersburg-Tampa Airboat Line, opened its doors as a business with a regular route schedule. And the route was just as the airline's name advertised. It ran passengers from St. Petersburg, Florida to Tampa, Florida by going across the bay. And this flight took less than 30 minutes. That was a significant improvement over the two hours a steamboat would take to make the same 21-mile, that's about 34 kilometers, uh, run. Of course, going or driving around the bay would have been even longer than that. The mayor of St. Petersburg, Abram C. Feel, was the airline's first customer, and he boarded a so-called flying boat designed by a St. Louis entrepreneur named Thomas Benoit. Feel had purchased his ticket by auction. A lot of people wanted to be the first passenger, and he ended up paying $400 for it. It wasn't a perfect flight. Some minor engine trouble made them make a brief water landing and then restart before they made it to Tampa, but this was still considered a success. The St. Petersburg-Tampa airboat line did not have longevity. It only ran for four months because as the winter moved into spring, most of the wealthy people in the area, snowbirds, uh, made their way back north. And then there just wasn't enough interest or money to keep it going. But in those four months, the airline made two flights a day, six days a week, at a ticket price of $5. Again, that $400 one was an auction to be first. Uh, And then they had another $5 charge that they would make per 100 pounds of freight if they were carrying freight. Pilot Tony Janus flew a total of 1,205 passengers in that short time that the airline was in operation. One of the legacies of this St. Pete Tampa line is an award that was established in 1964 by the Tampa and St. Petersburg Chambers of Commerce. The Tony Janus Award, issued by the Tony Janus Distinguished Aviation Society, continues on to this day and recognizes, quote, extraordinary accomplishments in the field of commercial aviation. One of the major steps in the progression of commercial aviation was the establishment of the U.S. National Airmail Service in August of 1918. And this new influx of money that it brought into the aviation industry bolstered that new and completely uh, burgeoning industry at a time when passenger fares were just a few over non-existent. <laughs> they were of, there were some people interested in paying to fly, but they really were not enough to sustain this. Carrying mail offered a real ongoing business that provided as much as 95% of all revenue for some companies. Early airmail pilots were operating on what was called CAMS, contract airmail routes. They were mapped out by the post office department, Before the establishment of an official airmail service, the post office was using military aircraft and pilots on its airmail service routes. They ran between New York, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. That transition from military craft and pilots to the post office department managing things on their own was enabled in part by Army Captain Benjamin Lipsner, who resigned his commission to become the airmail service's first superintendent. In 1919, the oldest carrier in the world that has retained its original name launched. That carrier is KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. It merged with Air France in 2004, but it still operates under its original name. In the following year, 1920, it began offering flights between Amsterdam and London, a route that it still offers almost 100 years later. The first year of KLM illustrates what we were saying a moment ago about passengers versus cargo as the economic drivers of early commercial aviation. The company's flights transported 345 passengers in year one and 25,000 kilos of mail and cargo. 
Today, a single flight routinely carries almost as much cargo at about 20,000 kilos and even more passengers, topping out at more than 400. Within a decade, KLM Royal Dutch Airlines was traveling a regular route to Indonesia, which was still a Dutch colony at that time. By the mid-1940s, they were running flights to Mexico and New York. The late 19-teens and early 1920s was when commercial airports started opening around the globe. London's Hounslow Heath Aerodrome opened as a commercial airport in 1919, though it had been an airfield uh, used by the Royal Flying Corps for almost a decade before it became a commercial entity. Australia's Sydney Airport and Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport both opened in 1920. East Prussia got a dedicated commercial airport in 1922 at Flughaven de Vau. The first transcontinental nonstop flight took place in 1923. A Fokker T-2 aircraft piloted by two U.S. Army Air Service officers, who were Lieutenant John A. McCready and Lieutenant Oakley G. Kelly, made this journey from Roosevelt Field, Long Island, to Rockwell Field in San Diego, California. They did that over the course of 27 hours. Their average speed was 91 miles an hour. Yeah, <laughs> I always, uh, that's always a good reminder, right? Air flight was not speedy, speedy <laughs> no. the way it is today. Uh, on February 2nd, 1925, the Contract Airmail Act, also known as the Kelly Act, was passed into law in the U.S. And this essentially let the U.S. Postal Service delegate their work managing routes, pilots, etc., to contracted airlines. And the first five contracts went to Colonial Air Transportation, National Air Transport, Robertson Aircraft Corporation, Western Air Express, and Varney Airlines. The U.S. Airmail Service still had its own dedicated pilots and aircraft. They were running mail along the transcontinental flyway, while the contracted airlines were handling shorter regional routes. That changed over a fairly short period of time, though, and by 1927, commercial airlines were handling all of the mail. By the end of the 1920s, almost four dozen airlines had postal service contracts. Once again, the airmail business helped move the industry forward. Prior to the Airmail Act of 1925, a lot of flight was still really precarious and kind of improvisational. Pilots flew a lot closer to the ground, between 200 and 500 feet, that's between 61 and 152 meters. They did this because they were navigating from visual cues below along with their compasses. There was not a lot else to the navigation process. But as airmail made the industry financially sustainable, it also opened the doors for companies to start offering regular commercial passenger services with established consistent schedules. It also was right on the heels of the Airmail Act that the first flight touched down at Candler Field outside of Atlanta in 1926 on a plot of land that had once been a racetrack. Candler Field would, of course, eventually become one of the busiest airports in the world and somewhere I spend a shocking amount of time, Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport. I spend less time than you, but I always marvel at how gigantic it is. Uh, as these changes were taking place in the world of airmail, President Calvin Coolidge signed the Air Commerce Act of 1926 into law. This placed a lot of responsibility regarding the aviation industry in the United States in the hands of the Secretary of Commerce. The Air Commerce Act gave the Secretary of Commerce the authorization to license pilots and aircraft and to establish and define air routes and allocate resources to develop navigation aids. That also gave the Secretary of Commerce the responsibility of investigating aviation accidents. The international field of commercial airlines continued to grow as well. Deutsche Lufthansa, which is today simply Lufthansa, started offering regular service in Germany in 1926. 
It operated continuously until after World War II, when it was shut down with the defeat of Nazi Germany, and it reformed in 1953, rebuilding the company from the ground up. We're about to talk about the beginnings of an airline that's much beloved by nostalgia enthusiasts, but first we will take a break and hear from one of the sponsors that keeps our show going. In 1927, Pan American Airways, known more commonly as Pan Am, began running mail service between Key West, Florida and Havana, Cuba. Pan Am went on to hit a number of significant milestones in commercial aviation history. Over the course of the late 20s and up through the 1940s, Pan Am innovated by being the first to run a regular schedule over water, the first to carry emergency life-saving equipment, the first to develop its own air traffic control system, the first to sell all-inclusive international packages, and the first to provide round-the-world service. In 1928, a company called Huff Dolland Dusters was operating out of Monroe, Louisiana as a crop dusting company. That was incorporated as a new organization called Delta Air Service, named for the Mississippi Delta, which was central to its business region. Delta started offering passenger flights in 1929 with stops in Dallas, Texas, Jackson, Mississippi, and Shreveport and Monroe, Louisiana. It expanded to include Tuscaloosa and Birmingham, Alabama, Meridian, Mississippi, Atlanta, Georgia, and Fort Worth, Texas within a year. But a lack of a government airmail contract meant that not enough money was coming in, and Delta ceased passenger offerings until 1934, when it finally got its airmail contract. That is also the year that it began operating as Delta Airlines. 1930 marks a significant moment in commercial airline staffing, Ellen Church was hired that year as the first female flight attendant. Boeing Air Transport is who hired her. You would know that company today as United Airlines. Church's story is one that's both triumphant and frustrating. It sounds a lot like a lot of the other stories that we have had about women in aviation. She was a very accomplished woman, including being a nurse and a licensed pilot. But of course, airlines were not hiring women to pilot their aircraft in 1930. That would not happen until 1973, when Emily Howell Warner was hired at Frontier Airlines. But Ellen Church was determined to get into the industry one way or another, and so she just started making her case to airline executives. She was quoted in the New York Times as saying, quote, Don't you think it would be good psychology to have women up in the air? How is a man going to say he is afraid to fly when a woman is working on the plane? She also pointed out that nurses would make excellent staffers to have on board and suggested that nurses could be the ones to help the passengers with their luggage and dispensing with snacks, which was business that the co-pilot had been handling up to that point. It does not surprise me that anyone suggests that perhaps a nurse would be a good person to work as a flight attendant, but the idea that the co-pilot was the person who had been handing out (laughs) snacks cracks me up a little bit. Boeing Air Transport's leadership was sold enough on this idea to start a three-month test program that involved hiring eight women, including Ellen Church, to take care of the passengers, which freed up the co-pilots for other duties. And then when the three months were over, an entire new career had been established. It was so successful for the airline that other airlines quickly started their own similar programs, and even other travel industries like railway companies started hiring women attendants to offer hospitality to their customers. 
Of course, the career of airline stewardess, as it was called for a very long time, was riddled with a lot of sexist requirements for the women applying for those positions. They had to have nursing degrees. They had to fall within a narrow and very low weight range. They had to be in their early 20s, and they had to be pretty and single. And if they met those requirements, they also had to be willing to clean the plane, be able to manage heavy lifting, and be ready to serve as first responders in the event of a medical emergency. I don't think we really get into it on here, but then there was also a lot of sexism and like the standards of dress for flight attendants and oh, how for the, sure. like the uniforms were made and what was required to be worn with them. Um, I mean, it's not sexist to say that you have to have a nursing degree, but the, to say that you have to be young, pretty, single, thin woman is. Well, and at the time... The idea of a male nurse was sure. pretty unheard of. So sure. contextually, yeah. yes, to say you have to be a nurse means this only is a women. ladies' job. Right, yeah. right. The first modern passenger airliner, the Boeing 247, was introduced in 1933. It included a lot of new features, including autopilot and de-icing equipment. United Airlines started offering coast-to-coast flights within the U.S. uh, with a Boeing 247 that same year. The route required seven stops along the way, and it took 20 hours, which is a lot. But that improved the earlier time of coast-to-coast trips by more than seven hours. It's so funny today that it's like, oh, it's going to take me six hours. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Two years later, Boeing introduced the 307 Stratoliner, which was the first high-altitude commercial airliner, and that was because it had the first pressurized cabin. It also had a flight engineer as part of its crew to manage pressurization and other aspects of the plane's functions, leaving the pilot free to focus on flying. Five of the ten Stratoliners that Boeing built became part of the U.S. Army's transport fleet during World War II. The first commercial airline terminal in North America was opened in 1935, and that was the Art Deco-style Newark Airport Administration Building, which was dedicated by Amelia Earhart. That airport has been running since 1928, and for 11 years after the commercial terminal opened, it was the only airport serving the greater New York area. That was the case until LaGuardia opened in 1939. And the origin story for LaGuardia is based in New York Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia's unwillingness to deplane in Newark. In 1934, the mayor refused to exit the plane that had carried him from Pittsburgh to Newark on the basis that the destination listed on his ticket was New York. The TWA flight that he was on continued from Newark to Brooklyn, where it landed in Floyd Bennett Field. And there, the mayor disembarked, along with several reporters he had arranged to come along for the ride because it was a publicity stunt. He then held a press conference to announce that New York needed its own commercial airport and they were not going to depend on New Jersey anymore. (laughs) Uh, They broke ground in Queens for a new airport in 1937 on a 558-acre plot of land that had once been an amusement park. New York City Municipal Airport was opened on October 15, 1939, and then had a name change to New York City Municipal Airport LaGuardia Field two weeks later, and then LaGuardia Airport in 1947. Yeah, a lot of people were like, you should have just called it LaGuardia from the beginning. (laughs) 
Uh, As New York and New Jersey were competing for airport dominance in the region, airlines were expanding their route offerings to progressively wider ranges. In 1936, Pan Am started offering flights crossing the Pacific Ocean, something that had taken a great deal of planning. The year before, in 1935, the company had tasked Captain Edwin Musick with running survey flights to plot the route out. And that route eventually ran from San Francisco to China with stops on islands owned by the U.S., where Pan Am had established hotels hotels, because that trip took 60 hours and it included four overnight stops along the way. Pan Am started its transatlantic passenger service on June 28, 1939, when a Boeing B-314 called Dixie Clipper took 22 passengers from New York to Europe. Similar to the Pacific route, the company had surveyed a route across the northern and the southern Atlantic, depending on the final destination. In the years before World War II, Pan Am established service to 52 countries around the world. In 1938, the Civil Aeronautics Act was signed into law by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt on June 23rd. And this established the Civil Aeronautics Authority, which included the Civil Aeronautics Board to oversee aircraft and pilot certification, and the Civil Aeronautics Administration to manage airway development, air traffic control, and safety programs. World War II really brought a lot of the commercial airline industry to a halt. We mentioned already some specific planes that had been commercial airliners, and they became part of military efforts once the war started. That really wasn't unusual. 200 of the 360 airline aircraft that were active in the airline industry were requisitioned by the military. The Air Transport Command was established in 1942 and managed the use of commercial planes to transport materials and people around the world during the war. In earlier wars, similar things happened with people's, like, personal ships also. So it's like this whole idea was not a totally new thing. No. Uh, Non-military air travel essentially stopped as priority was given to war-related travel needs. The Office of Defense Transportation started printing posters with the text, Is Your Trip Necessary? Needless Travel Interferes with the War Effort. Airlines like Pan Am that had already established global routes were especially valuable to the military, and both airliners and staff were contracted through the Air Transport Command. During the war, President Roosevelt became the first U.S. president to fly while serving in office. And that is where we will end part one. In part two, we'll look at a stretch of a little over three decades during which the airline industry went through incredible growth. And we will also have a special guest at the end of the show. Yeah, it's like a little bonus episode at the end of the next one where we get to have uh, a fabulous person on to chat yeah, with us. longtime friend of the show, joining Holly. Yeah, I think about this stuff a lot. And it, it, the reason I wanted to do this episode is because I have been flying so much this year. Um, and I, I occasionally ruminate on, like, how did we get here to the point that yeah. everything that seems so uh, sort of mundane to us and, like, part of just part of everyday life. I, I got to go to the airport and get on a plane. But literally a century ago, that was, like, a mind-boggling concept. Yeah. Well, and for a lot of people, like, it still is a totally, like, not part of their experience at all. Like, when, like my yeah. family... My my parents did some flying before I was born because my dad was in the army and like we right. deployed to Vietnam. You did it on a plane, um, but the, like we never had a family vacation that involved air travel at all. And I I never got on a plane until I was in college and went to a conference. Um, and then I was reading a thing before we came in here, like something like eighty percent of people in the world have never been on a plane, uh, but only like twenty percent of Americans have never been on a plane. Yeah. I also, my dad was career Air Force. We never took a plane anywhere for vacation. 
vacation. Yeah. <laughs> Even if we were going very far, we always drove it. Um, one of those reasons we'll talk about a little bit in part two, but it was not uh, cost-effective for right. a family to fly at all yeah. uh, commercially. So there are uh, many barriers for a lot of people. Yeah, we had that plus my mother being terrified of flying, which is something I kind of inherited <laughs> from her and then had to deal with as I became an adult whose job required some air travel. Yes. Uh, I never was afraid of flying as a kid. I had a little period where I became afraid of it after a little scare. Now I'm over it a file of time. Uh, <laughs> I have a little bit of listener mail from our listener, Catherine, and I love it because she sent us a postcard, but she put it in an envelope, so I have no um, none of the smearing that we occasionally get. She writes, Hi, Tracy and Holly. My name is Catherine, and I started listening to your podcast earlier this summer. I work on cruise ships as a costumer, and one of my friends who I work with introduced me. I'm a huge fan of history, as my dad is a history teacher. Thank you to your dad for uh, being an educator. Uh, and she says, And I particularly love your spooky episodes since my birthday is Halloween. I look forward to more spooky episodes this October. Best Catherine. P.S. I hope you enjoy this postcard. I picked it up while I was working on a ship that traveled to the Mediterranean, specifically Malta. My friend Olivia, who started me listening, and I thought you would like it. It is a beautiful picture of Malta. Uh, thank you so much, Catherine. And also, um, one, cool job. Two, happy birthday coming up. Uh, it will not. It will only be a couple weeks away when this episode airs. So I hope you have a wonderful October and Halloween birthday season. That sounds fantastic to me. Yeah. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us everywhere on social media as Missed in History and on the internet as mistinhistory.com. If you would like to subscribe to the show, we sure would enjoy that. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 